One of the titles that Jesus is often given is the friend of sinners. Many of us could relate to that of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, of how He showed friendship and kindness to us as a sinner. You know, we just, after observing the Lord's table, reminded me of the fact that seated at that table, and as you remember the scene of of Jesus announcing His betrayer at the table, and the way that the whole situation is described there, how He would have dipped the sop and then handed it off, It would be apparent that Judas Iscariot, his betrayer, who Jesus already knew about this about him, was seated to his left. And Jesus showed friendship and kindness and mercy to him, really giving him another opportunity here to repent and turn from the direction that he was heading. And obviously we know that Judas did not do that, but clear to the finish, Jesus showed kindness and friendship to Judas Iscariot. There was another sitting at that table, a man named Levi, whose name was changed to Matthew. And Jesus showed kindness and friendship to him as well. And we're going to learn about this relationship today from the book of Mark in chapter 2, verse 13, is where this story begins. And it's important for us to learn this as a church, as we are studying this book of Mark, we're learning what it looks like to be one community for the community. So we're learning the mannerism of Jesus because we want to love, learn, and live Jesus. So the manner of Jesus' life and how he ministered is what we want to be about. And so as I watched the patterns of Jesus' life and how he would teach people, he would touch people, and then he would talk to his father. There's a consistent theme and pattern in the way all through all the Gospels this always works. And we want to learn that pattern as well. But I watch carefully Jesus' human interactions with people because I can learn some things about how to relate to people that are not like me. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is coming into a sinful world and obviously knowing full well as He comes here, He is ultimately going to be crucified. And He knew that in advance. All the prophecy had already um, let that be known. Jesus knew this. This is the end result is he will be crucified. But nevertheless, for the three and a half years he has his earthly ministry openly in public, Jesus has a lot of human interactions with people and models for us as Christ's followers how to, how to interact with people that are not anything like us now if you're a Christ follower. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13, he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him And he taught them. As has been patterned already, and we're only in chapter 2, but this has become a pattern where Jesus has performed miracles, he taught, and he went alone to be with his Father. Well, now here he is again. We're seeing him now go down by the sea, and Jesus, he he attracts a crowd everywhere he goes, and so this is a massive group of people that he gets to minister to. He goes down by the water, and I believe he uses that kind of like an amphitheater because the, the sound of your voice carries so well over water, it gives him a way to communicate with a lot of people at one time. But as he goes there, the real issue is, as he goes there and he taught them, I think again this reestablishes and reminds us of our purpose. Because back in Mark chapter 1, we learned that Jesus, when he had done miracles and the crowds were following and he had gone to be alone, 
And here's what Peter had said. He said, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. The fact is, is Jesus could have just stayed in one location and people just kept coming with more needs and more needs and more needs. But he moved on often to go teach and to preach. And he said, it's for this reason I came. Because Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. He's, he's the king of the kingdom and he's come preaching this message of the kingdom and ultimately the message of salvation. What is the gospel message? And he's proclaiming this. But he said, it's for this reason or for this purpose I have come forth. And I think it's in this, I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. That when we find and discover our purpose in the same manner of Jesus' purpose is to proclaim and to live the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom. We are kingdom people. We are the kingdom of God people. And therefore, our lives reflect that in the manner in which we live daily. And our message should reflect that as well. And so we go about proclaiming this or teaching this and preaching this. And so obviously, if you're, if, if you're going to follow the Great Commission in the pattern that Jesus gave to us, is that we are to go into all the nations and make disciples, or it literally says, teach, teaching them. So we make a, a known the message of the gospel. It's a proclamation of truth. And when someone then receives that truth, they are to be baptized. It's a public declaration of their faith in Christ. But it goes on then to say, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I command you. And so we have learned things from Christ. And as a mature follower of Christ, or maybe you're just a step ahead of someone else that just is brand new to Christianity, we are instructed in our purpose. This gives us our defined purpose. And that is to disciple people or make disciples of people. So if you are a disciple of Christ, you have a, re a responsibility in your life to learn Christ, to live Christ, and multiply Christ in your life. And so whether you feel like, well, I'm not sure I'm that good of a teacher, and I, you know, I'm not a good student of the Bible, and I don't know how to figure all that stuff out. Hey, you've learned some things about walking with Jesus. You've walked through some hardships. You've, you've learned some things about prayer. You've learned things about the character of God. You've learned things about serving. You've learned things about consistency. You've learned a lot of things. And so whether you feel like you're a, a great teacher of the Bible or not, that's not even the issue. The issue is you can tell anyone that's now a new Christ follower, hey, come along with me and I want to just model and, and follow Christ. And follow me as I follow Christ. And that's what we are instructed. And when your purpose is found in that, you never have to wonder when you wake up in the morning, what is my life about? Why am I even here on this planet? What am I about? What am I supposed to do? Because that is your, that is your life. It's why you are here. And Jesus said, for this purpose, I have come forth. We go back to Mark verse, chapter 2, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now, this Levi we learn in Matthew 9, is act, or this Levi guy actually becomes Matthew. His name changes. It doesn't say that Jesus changed it. I think he changed it himself because I think it's like, I'm done with that old, old me and I want a new name. The name Matthew means gift of God. And he's going to meet Jesus and, God, and Jesus is going to grant him a great gift. And the gift he first acknowledges with Jesus is friendship because Jesus is going to treat him not as this dirty, rotten sinner, but as a friend. Because when you understand what 
Levi was about working in the tax office, this would have been like a roadside booth. And Levi or Matthew would be collecting taxes from people for various things. So you had different layers of taxes and the people were taxed to no end. You had property taxes for sure, but then you have all these use taxes and small product taxes and tax for this and tax for that. And quite frankly, somebody like Matthew would have had to bid to get that job. You buy your job. I learned this when I lived in Asia that people, after you graduate from college, you, uh, when you're applying for work, you would actually kind of buy that job. And so there's a, not only an interview process, but there's also a process of who brings the most money to the table to get this particular job. And then over time, those wages are paid back to you, sort of, but you're going to buy the job. Well, that would be Matthew. He bought his job. He bid for this office, and now he gets it. But now he's like a, he's like a mafia guy. He's a thug. These guys would take and go get tax money as fast as they can get it, and not only would they take what they were supposed to give unto Caesar, but then they could also skim off the top for themselves. And these guys lived better than everybody else, but no one liked them. They were thieves. They're thugs. They ripped off people. And the last person you would ever want to be affiliated with openly was this guy, who we now know as Matthew, who's also, as his life is transformed by Jesus, is one of the guys that was sitting at that table the night of the Lord's table. Matthew had no doubt heard preaching from Jesus, whether direct nearshot or the trickle-down effect, he was obviously privy to the miracles because everyone's hearing about that. So he's, he knows what's up. So when Jesus now approaches him and says, follow me, Matthew immediately drops his stuff and follows him. Now, this is a big deal. Different than the fishermen who have been called who could easily go back to the fishing business if the Jesus thing didn't work out. Matthew's done here. When he walks away from the tax booth to follow a new master, his days of going back to the tax business, it's over. His entire life circle, influences, friend circles, employment, everything, it's over. And so sometimes we kind of miscalculate the cost of discipleship and what it means to actually follow Jesus. And Jesus lays this stuff down repeatedly through the, the Gospels that, you know, you count the cost to follow. And sometimes it's the very jam-up that we might have. We hear this message of Jesus and believe, you know, I, I, I think that's right. I don't know, man. I think this Jesus guy is the real deal, and he is the Savior. But there's something that becomes this obstacle to the heart about wanting to yield to Jesus because it's going to cost you something. And you think, well, I thought it was a gift. It is, this incredible gift of salvation. But when Jesus becomes your master and the Lord of your life, it changes things. And so sometimes people start calculating out, well, does this mean i got to start going to church every Sunday? And I mean, I, that's not, I don't want to be about that. And they're going to ask me for my money next, and then it's going to be this, and then they're going to want me to do more stuff, and then before long I'm going to be one of those church people. And I don't want to do that. Well, that, that's not the objective. What happens is when you become a Christ follower, you just want to serve him. And he, he directs the steps of how and where and when and what and all the details of that. But the fact is, you're just, your heart of devotion says, I just want to serve the Lord, whatever that's going to look like. 
but it does come with a cost. And Matthew dropped his stuff, picked up, and followed him. Here's what's interesting. Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. He knows what's in the heart of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. They're not interested in following Jesus because they have their own system. But when he approaches Matthew and says, follow me, he already knew that what was going on in Matthew's heart, that Matthew was a ready man to follow. And here's what's interesting. In this room right now, Jesus knows what's going on in your heart right now. He knows everything. He knows what you're thinking. He knows the obstacles. If you're not a Christ follower yet, he knows the obstacles of why you would say no to Jesus. He knows all of what's going on. It's why in John chapter 2, I'm not going to have you turn there, but in John chapter 2, there were many people who were following after Jesus all the time because of all the miracles. But it says that Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Why? Because it said that he knew what was in the heart of man. They were all about the Jesus show because he did cool stuff. But they were not interested in being a follower of Jesus as a disciple of Christ. That's not their interest at all. They just liked the Jesus show. But Matthew was different. Matthew's heart was ready to receive Christ, and he immediately went, costing everything, no going back. In verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, this is Jesus goes to his house now, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? This made no sense. But here's the deal. Matthew's got his friend circle is all the tax collectors and sinful people. Matthew now has a new master of his life, and he wants his friend circle to now know who's this, who's this Jesus guy. Matthew invites him into his house. All these people all show up. Jesus is totally comfortable in his own skin. He can go hang out with these guys. It's no problem. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they couldn't process this. The religious crowd could not get this. Why? Because for the Pharisees and the the scribes to even go to that house and touch physically that home would be defiling. To be seen in that home would be now you're like an open connection with these sinful reprobates? You've got to be kidding me. So the Pharisees had established this ceremonial washing that when we step out into the general population, we have to ceremonially wash so that all of you would know you are defiled dogs. But we, however, well, we are the holy ones. And so they would go through, after being in the marketplace, all this ceremonial washing down their arms and hand sanitizer everywhere. And they would go through all this business to really just make everybody realize we're clean and holy, you're not. And that was what was expected for Jesus. If this guy's truly the Messiah, the miracle worker, we get the miracle part, we hear the teaching, he's kind of got the seamed approach of Messiahship, But this just disqualified him in our mind. There's no way. Because there is no holy man that would ever be seen with this crowd. And this is where we're learning the interaction of Jesus. Jesus had no problem being with the sinner. Being with the tax collectors. Hanging out with the thugs. He was totally comfortable in his own skin. Why would this be true? 
Jesus knew his mission. He knew his purpose. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God, he demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we get to see the purpose and mission and ministry of Jesus that he came to die for the ungodly. Well, who's that? All of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Now, the religious crowd had esteemed themselves as righteous based on their own work system, but they were not righteous in light of who God is. As I observed this, I, I was thinking about in my own heart and life, my own friend circles, my own ministry. I was thinking about, you know, as the longer you're a Christian, you have less lost people in your life, it seems like. Because by the time you're with your family, and most of which may be Christians, maybe not for you, but often that's the case. And your friend circles are often your church circles, which makes sense because by the time we have classes to learn and other places we serve and minister to people, oftentimes that is church people and safe people. Well, and that's wonderful. And sometimes we, the manner in which we are in places of education or employment. We're thrilled to have Christian bosses and managers and leaders, and maybe that's you, and all that is wonderful stuff. But I was thinking over the fact that, you know, it's, it gets pretty easy to become pretty distant from people who don't know Jesus yet. And in what manner do I reveal friendship and show kindness to someone who doesn't know Jesus more than just a splash here and a splash there, but to genuinely be a friend to someone who doesn't know Jesus, not to be my project, but that I might show friendship and kindness because that's just who Jesus is. It's a struggle because I, I'm, here's all the debates that go on in our mind and heart. So I think about, okay, Jesus is in this house with these guys that are obviously known reprobates and thieves. But he doesn't sin while he's with them. So he's totally okay to be in the midst of that, but he's not joining in with their thievery and their sinful behavior. But then we have all these struggles in Scripture that, you know, we teach our children, you know, you, and I've said this countless times before a whole football team, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And there's a lot of truth in that because of the fact that, you know what, if you run with the companion of fools, you'll be a fool. You run with the wise, you'll be wise. But what about being a friend to the sinner? How do we do that? And, and there's the struggle of, in Psalm chapter 1, is man, happy is the man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but, man, his delight's in the law of the Lord. Well, if I walk not, stand not, sit not, with the sinful, ungodly, reprobate crowd, well, how am I to be their friend? 
Well, then we struggle with, well, evil communication corrupts good manners. So, man, we need to be distant. Stay back, stay back. We're to abstain from all appearance of evil, according to Thessalonians. All this is true. So how do you do the Jesus life and keep all of these things straight of distance and holiness and isolation or insulation? And how do you do all that? How do you do the Jesus thing to go sit down in the house of sinful people and be okay with it? Well, I want you to observe. Jesus was with them. He's not seeking counsel from them. He's not walking in the manner of them. Jesus had no problem being with them, but did not participate in their sin. Now, there's wisdom that comes with this, because at the same time, there's a whole crowd of people that are like terrorists that want Jesus dead. Well, did he go hang out in their house? No. In fact, he distanced himself from them because it wasn't the right time. Now, later, they're going to see to it that he gets crucified. But Jesus also distanced himself. So I can observe there's wisdom and not just throwing your life away. So I'm not going to probably try to call President Putin this afternoon and go see if we can hang out and have coffee. It's probably not going to work out. But then we think about, well, how do we engage people that are not Christ followers yet without sin? I have seen these stories of Jesus often thrown back in my face for people that want to go kind of live a reprobate lifestyle with sinful people, kind of missionary dating, or we call it missionary something. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to win them, really. And how are you going about that? Well, I mean, I go where they go, do what they do, and participate in all the stuff they're with so that there's no separation. I don't want them to feel judged by me. Time out. Did you, is that how Jesus went about that? Yeah, he had no problem being with them, but what was he doing with them? Jesus was with them and instructing them and teaching the manner of the kingdom. Jesus was demonstrating friendship. He wasn't having to participate in their sin in order to be a part of it. You know, I think about when we go on short-term mission trips as a church. You know, you're overcoming culture barriers, all these things, and most of the people you interact with are not Christ followers yet. But we break our neck trying to, to befriend them so that we can have a conversation, so that we can demonstrate kindness, so that we can carve a pathway here, no stumbling block to the gospel. I think about living abroad, as my family did, for a season of time as, as a missionary. Man, I did not know a single soul who was a Christian. My entire friend world had to be people that didn't know Jesus yet so we could build a rapport but there were a lot of things that we were invited to be a part of that, you know, I can come and be where you are, but I don't need to do what you're doing. And there were times it was like, you know, that's not the best for my family. That's, a, that's not an environment I can be in. Some of us can relate to this because you have relatives that you don't know what to do with them. Like, I'm not sure I want them in my house because their life is a wreck. They live an R-rated lifestyle. They're R-rated conversations. I don't want my kids to hear this stuff. Well, I've, I've been there and had to say, you know, I, I love you and care for you, but the, man, if, the manner of your conversation in your life, I, you know, the influence you're having with my kids, we can't do that. And be very honest. And you know what's 
Why are you judging me? I'm not judging you. But you can't talk that way at your work either. You'll be fired. And you can't do these things anywhere else. So why are you doing it here? And so we could have a very open and fair dialogue. But it's not this position of judgment and condemnation. There was no place for that. But it's how to be a friend to someone whose life is completely contrary to my own. And that's Jesus. And he just approaches this guy with no problem being now not only approaching him, but going into his home without having to do all that Matthew was doing previous or all the rest of those guys at that table. As I was contemplating the ministry that God has placed on our hearts as a church, we bought a piece of land across from the school. We look forward to someday building a, a building over there with an intent that it's a place for students and a place for families. It's gonna, we want it to be a building that's used all the time, day in, day out. It's not just a Sunday building. It'll be an all-the-time building. Well, I'm excited for that. But I can tell you that as a, as a ministry that throws its doors open to people that are not like all of us, that are not Christians yet, They're, they don't know the Bible yet, they don't know Jesus yet, well, you're going you're gonna to see and hear things that are, well, pretty sinful. Are we okay with that? I asked the question because you know, when I was pastoring in Florida, we had an incredible opportunity with the facility that we had to kind of throw our doors open to some the skater crowd, and that's the skateboard crowd. That's a very unique group of people. Hard to communicate with sometimes. They don't really like to be home. They don't like the rules. And they like to be left alone, but they love to skate. So we built some boxes and some cool things for them to participate in that and skate and come and, you know, say, hey, guys, I want to welcome you here to do that, but um, before you skate, I want you to come in here and, and uh, I want to share some things, some truth with you. And so our leaders would do that. And then after you hear that, you're welcome to skate. Well, this became challenging for us because, man, stuff gets tore up. Sometimes there were words that were used. And, man, I had them said right to my face when I was like, hey, dude, let's not uh, grind that. Because they'll jump and grind everything and, like, shred it to pieces. But, hey, dude, let's not grind that. Man, I mean, it's like cussed me out to my face. And I had, you know, families that would say to me, Dwayne, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. With what? Wow. Man, I want to send my kids to a youth group where it's safe and like it's healthy and they don't have to go to church to hear the F-bomb dropped in the youth group. And I get that. We ended up with several people that were living very interesting lifestyles, gender confused and everything else that were coming to be a part of our group. And so I asked, well, as a church, aren't we engaged in the mission to reach people? Well, absolutely. Well, there's 45 of them inside this building right now that don't know Jesus yet, and what a great opportunity to share the love of God with them and to communicate the gospel with them and live and not be judgmental in how we go about it. Well, 
I'd be more comfortable if we just went kind of door to door out in the neighborhood. And basically, here was the motto behind this. And this was only a couple people that had, I get it. I totally understood the problem. It was the conflict I was sharing with you in the scriptures. And here was the struggle. I love the idea of reaching people out there and having them clean up their act before they come here. And then I go to what Jesus did. And he had no problem sitting down at a table with sinful people who didn't know anything about the gospel. And he was comfortable in his skin. I have no idea what was talked about at that table, but I'm sure it wasn't all clean and holy. And so I think for our church, man, having a passionate love for people, recognizing that our Father in heaven sent his only begotten Son into this world to die for the ungodly, of which I am one of them. In verse 17, when Jesus heard it, all the chatter, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I repeated this in Matthew 9 so you could see the same story. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard that. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But there's something added in Matthew's gospel. But go and learn what this means, Jesus said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus quoted from the book of Hosea. If you're not familiar with that, Hosea was a prophet to Israel during a time when Israel was living in spiritual idolatry, adultery, as God called it, because you're to be married to God, but quite frankly, married to the world. And so for God to illustrate this and to live something as a metaphor right in front of their eyes, he instructed the prophet Hosea to marry a woman who was a prostitute. And so he rescued her from this, but she went right back to it again and, and adulterated herself even more. But Hosea was faithful. And God used that whole scene as a metaphor for Israel that he told him, I desire mercy and not sacrifice because while all of this was going on, God was being a merciful God and withholding back the judgment that was rightfully deserved while meanwhile Israel was not being faithful. And so what was the lesson? Well, his whole point was, speaking now to the religious crowd, you've got all the religious things going on that, that look and smell, it's all polished, it all looks right. But he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so for the religious crowd in Jesus' day with this whole scene with Matthew, the religious crowd saw themselves as righteous because after all, they sacrificed, all on time, they pay their money, they do their prayers, they've got their system down pat. And Jesus says, yeah, but you call yourselves righteous, but I've, called, I've come to call the sinners to repentance, and they're like, whew, boy, glad that's not me. I'm not one of those. But no, they were. And that was the whole point. Jesus says, I'm the physician, and I've come to call the sick to the place of healing. And the religious crowd couldn't see that they were sick. Jesus calls to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is simple. 
It's a change of mind that brings a change of action. And here's what happens when we are called to repentance. We're walking a, a direction that's contrary to the word of God. Whatever it is, it, this is on a day-to-day -day basis. We repent often. But at the moment of my salvation, I'll tell you what happened in my repentance is I going away from God, hear the gospel message, the, the good news of Jesus, by faith believing Jesus, and then turn from the direction I was going unto Jesus. That's repentance. It's simply a turn. Now, does that mean that from the moment I turned that everything was perfect? No, because constantly every day it feels like you turn back to go the wrong direction again. So then you repent. You hear the truth. You turn back and go back to Jesus again. And this is a day-to-day -day constant process of, of repentance. It's why the Lord's table is so important in our lives. Because we, we come to the table and we repent and turn from things to go back and restore fellowship with Jesus. But this is not a manner of works that you do all these things. No, because Romans chapter 4 teaches this. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If somehow you could work your way to salvation, then God would owe you something. Because you've worked your way and he's to pay you a wage. But no, that's not how it works. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And this is what happened with Matthew. He heard. He heard, come follow me. And by faith, he just gets up and follows Jesus. He turned away from being the tax collector thug he was to now he's going to follow Jesus. This is what repentance looks like. So in conclusion, let's consider some things here. First off, Jesus came to save sinners. Don't ever lose sight of it. Jesus came into this world to save sinners and as the Apostle Paul says, of whom I am chief. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no righteous, no, not one. So let me assure you, I can take from the story of Matthew and realize you don't have to clean up your act first to come to Jesus. Matthew was sitting in the tax booth collecting money, doing his normal work until he meets Jesus, drops it, and says, I'm going to follow Jesus. He didn't stop doing the tax thing and then kind of get all life figured out and give all of his money back to everybody he'd ripped off. And now I'm good enough for Jesus. No, he was sitting in the tax spot as a thug, met Jesus, dropped it, and became a Jesus follower. But as a Christ follower here today, and what does this look like to be the friend of sinners? I sure don't want to take on the approach of the Pharisees that I would look upon people with a, a disdain of dirtiness and ugliness and pointing out all the sin and all the problems. No, I think we all recognize that when lost people do what lost people do. Why would I expect any different? All it does is reveal the need for a Savior. But to offer kindness, to engage conversation... Maybe it's as simple as showing a friendship to say, hey, you want to grab a cup of coffee? I'd just like to get to know you better, understand your life and just where you've come from. And maybe it's somebody you've been working with for years. If I could offer a challenge to our church today, it'd be this. That in the next year of your life, the next year, 
that you would have one gospel conversation with someone giving them a valid opportunity to know Jesus. Maybe this is a normal part of your life and that's a week-in, week-out conversation for you. Praise the Lord. But you know, I find it to be true that often in church world, we may go months or years outside of mission trips where we have not had a a valid conversation with someone giving them an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. So this is my challenge to us today as a church. Jesus is a friend of sin. Let's bow our heads. Now, if this is the day in your life where you know that Jesus is, is speaking into your heart, the conviction is there, you recognize, I am a sinner, I need a Savior, that's it. How do you become a Christian? Well, as we've already said, it's not because of all the things you're going to do. You don't go into this cleanup process and start fixing everything, and then, then I'll be good enough to become a Christian. No. By faith, trust Jesus Christ. What do you mean trust Him? Believing that He is the Son of God? believing that he died on the cross to pay your sin debt in full, and believing that he rose again from the grave alive after the third day. So the question is, in the heart level, do you believe that is true? The person of Jesus Christ is God who died and rose again. And if so, do you trust him? To trust him that what he has done for you was sufficient payment for your sin. And that today you'd ask him to save you. Right there in your seat, you can have a conversation right now with the Lord and be transferred from death to life, from foe to friend. And maybe you would pray to the Lord and just calling upon his name, Lord. I know I'm a sinner, I know I need a Savior, and I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and today I'm asking you to save me. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you for eternal life in Christ Jesus. And maybe you pray a voice of prayer that's like that. It doesn't have to be those words, but your heart's for Jesus today. And Christian, I pray that our hearts would be soft, in this world for those that oppose Christianity for those that oppose themselves and just go on to destroy their own lives in various ways that we know the hope of Christ and we know what it means to be saved and be liberated from sin to walk in the, under the Lord and that we would be a people that would be friends 